afraid of a global nuclear disaster? Or the likes of a Star Wars cosmic conflict? Are we on a countdown to the Battle of Armageddon? What does the future hold for our world? Have you tried to understand the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation, only to be confused by all the symbols? These and many other amazing questions will be answered through this prophecy seminar. Yes, you can understand the books of Daniel and Revelation, and in the process, get to know God in a deeper way. Welcome to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel. Here is your host, Pastor David Price. Well, good evening, friends. I'd like to welcome you to our Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar. We have finally reached Prophecy Seminar Lesson Number 30. And that's where we're going to spend our time tonight, sharing Daniel's message with the world. I'm going to invite you to pray as we open this seminar session. Our loving Father in heaven, you are such an awesome, loving and merciful God. Tonight we want to come under your leadership and your teaching. And we pray, Father, that the powerful Holy Spirit of God will minister grace and truth into our hearts and minds. And I ask it in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. The tremendous message found in the book of Daniel needs to be given to the entire world. God has not given the message to us in order for us to keep it to ourselves. We must share this message with our neighbours and friends. Hopefully, you'll be able to invite some of them to the next Prophecy or Revelation Seminar. Perhaps you will even consider hosting a seminar in your home in which you could invite your friends. Each of us must do everything in our power to share this message of the book of Daniel. For it is this message that helps prepare the way for the coming of the King. I want to share with you what we're going to discover in tonight's lesson. Question one, how do people on earth join the body of Christ? Number two, what form of organization did the New Testament church have? Number three, what percentage is a tithe? And number four, what are Christians told to seek after first? So thank you for joining us tonight. We're in Prophecy Seminar Lesson number 30, which is entitled Sharing Daniel's Message with the World. Would you join me as we go into our first heading tonight, the need for witnessing. You know, we just can't keep this great message to ourselves. And we go into Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4 and question 1. What was to happen to the book of Daniel until the time of the end? The angel Gabriel says to Daniel in Babylon, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, when many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. So friends, he was to shut up the words and seal the book. Now, in terms of a book and a scroll, in ancient times, scrolls or books could be shut up by putting a wax seal on them to seal them up. And this would mean that they were preserved and that they were unread until needed at a future time. Question two, 
when the book of Daniel was unsealed, what would be happening in the world? We go to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. So that relates very uh, specifically to the last days. It's not just secular knowledge, is it? It is actually referring to knowledge of God's word, but it also does apply to the increase in scientific knowledge in the last days. The Bible predicts that in the end time, the book of Daniel would be opened again. People would be investigating the scriptures as well as running to and fro throughout the earth. And knowledge of scripture and science, etc., would be increased. The Bible actually foretells an explosion of knowledge as a sign of the end time. This prophecy seminar is actually part of this fulfillment, including this great prophecy. So, friends, God's last remnant day people and church believe very strongly in the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation and in the gift of prophecy. And so this is the work that we are to do, to draw God's people's attention around the world back to his word and the great issues in the last days. Question three, what did Jesus say must happen before the end shall come? We go to Matthew 24, 14 and Revelation 14, 6 to 12. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let's have a look at the first angel's message. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What did Jesus say must happen before the end shall come? He said, this gospel will be preached in all the world. What a beautiful promise that is and brings us hope that the message will reach every person. Before Jesus can come, the gospel must go to every person on planet Earth. Jesus does not give this commission to only a few people. So we must all band together to share the good news that Jesus is coming again. Question four, what were the last words that Jesus spoke as he ascended into heaven? We go to Acts chapter one and verse eight, written by the apostle Luke. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I think the King James says, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So the last words Jesus spoke were very clear. God's last day people were to receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and you shall be witnesses unto me. This applies to the early church, the middle church and the last days church. It gives us all hope, doesn't it? That the Holy Spirit through God's people in all ages will finish the work. Jesus' parting words to his disciples was the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To accomplish that task, the disciples needed the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that power, the power of the Holy Spirit, has been promised to the church today to enable it to fulfill its commission to carry the message into all the world.
So we who live in the last days, who seek to carry Daniel's special message of truth into all the world, must be dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that task. It cannot be accomplished by human power. We all need the divine power of the Spirit. God has called each of us to be witnesses for him through the power of the Holy Spirit. What you have discovered from God's word in this prophecy seminar cannot be kept to yourself. To be faithful to the commission of Jesus, you must share it with others. And Jesus promises that he will give you the Holy Spirit as you witness. Well, we are at the top of page three in our lesson guide. And uh, we're going into heading number two, the need for belonging. God has commissioned every one of us to share his message with the entire world to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord. But each individual is not to share it in a vacuum. The task is too gigantic to be done independently. That's why we need each other and that's why we need to belong to God's church. So let's have a look at question five. What is the church in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23? And God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus to be head over all things to the church. The who? The church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Friends, I think a lot of people might be surprised that the church is actually the body of Christ on earth. What a tremendous privilege to be a part of the body of Christ. Jesus thinks so much of his church that he calls it the body of Christ. We are his own body on the earth to share and to give the gospel to the world. Question six, where has God placed all the members of his church in 1 Corinthians 12, 18? But now God has set the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. There's our answer. Where did God place all the members of his church? Friends, people who believe in God should be in the body, which is the church. Well, some people feel church membership is not important, that it is not vital to belong to the church. The Apostle Paul insists that every member of Christ's body is in the body. Each person is a member of the body. God is not leading independent persons. He's leading a movement today. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll see on the screen, the Apostle Paul describes the church as a physical body. Each one has a different function, but each one functions in the body. By working together, the church is able to fulfill the mission of Christ to proclaim his message into all the world. That is the reason for its existence, the existence of the church, and that's why every member needs to be a part of Jesus Christ's body on earth. Question seven, what did people join when they were saved in New Testament times? So we're looking here at the structure and the arrangement of God's church. Let's go to Acts 2 and verse 47. In ancient times, the people there were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the what? 
he added to his church, the church daily, those who were being saved. What did people join when they were saved in New Testament times? The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Those who were being saved in New Testament times were not commissioned to work independently. They were added to the church and they became members of the church and they functioned as a part of the church. I want to ask the question, friends, how can you join God's last day church today? The answer very simply is through baptism. And that is a beautiful and powerful service. I encourage you to move ahead and follow Jesus Christ into the waters of baptism. So it's interesting, isn't it, that we need to join together as a body for fellowship and worship. So, friends, there are people today who say they can be a Christian without joining a church. So I suppose you can be a sportsman without belonging to any particular sports club. Is that possible? But what better church could you join than God's last day remnant church of Bible prophecy? But why? Let's go and ask the question, is worship necessary for believers? Here's a text that's not in the lesson. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith and our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. That's Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Friends, I want you to notice today that it's getting harder to worship God, especially in a corporate context. You have to fight to be able to go somewhere and worship God, to be able to do that freely and with freedom of conscience. So I want to just now go to a more modern version. Is worship necessary for believers? Let's have a look at the same verses in the New Living Translation. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. So, friends, we're going through a test right now. And the next test will be that there will be a day of worship that's brought to planet Earth. And that day will be a day that's tied in with the care of the environment and so like daniel 3 there will be an incentive and a compulsion towards false worship and then after that the third test will come and that will be a test over whether people are going to engage in true worship like in daniel chapter 6 where daniel went up through the windows open and three times a day prayed to the god of heaven when for 30 days that was banned under a government order. So friends, we are going through a testing time. The point of this, is worship necessary for believers? Absolutely. Verse 25, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. And what a great and glorious day that will be. Please join me at the top of page eight, uh, top of page four, and in question eight.
Why did Paul leave Titus behind at Crete when he continued his missionary journey? We're in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul wrote, For this reason I left you, Titus, in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Friends, we don't know the reason why Paul wrote this. We don't know if he had to leave in a hurry or whether he fully trusted that Titus could do this work. But we are asked, why did Paul leave Titus behind at Crete? It was to set in order the things that were lacking there in the local church in terms of its structure and its organization and to go ahead and boldly appoint elders in every city just as Paul had commanded him to. Paul left Titus on Crete for the express purpose of organizing the church and appointing church officers. The early church had meeting places, rules, regulations, and a definite organization with officers presiding over the church. Let's go to question nine. When a dispute arose in the early church, a council was convened at Jerusalem. The church leaders discussed the issue and then made a pronouncement. Was that pronouncement to be accepted by the churches? Now, friends, I'm assuming for your homework that you've had time to read those 13 verses in Acts 15 and verses 19 to 31. I will just take the most important verses tonight to summarize this question. We're in Acts 15, 23. So the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem wrote this letter by them to the apostles, the elders and the brethren. Those are the ones in Jerusalem to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia greetings. So the Jewish church of leaders writes a letter to the churches of non-Jews or Gentiles out at Antioch, Syria and Cilicia. And they say greetings. In verse 28 of Acts 15. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem make an incredible claim. They say, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you, the Gentile believers who were becoming Christians, no greater burden than these necessary things. This is a very powerful statement. They must have done a lot of praying and heart searching and maybe even fasting to make a statement that they believed that this message had come from the power of the Holy Spirit. So what three regulations are they going to impose on the Gentile believers? We find out in Acts 15 and verse 29 that the Gentiles abstain from things offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, also from sexual immorality. If you, the Gentiles, keep yourselves from these, you will do well farewell. So friends, the Jewish church, based on God's Old Testament scriptures, banned three things. Number one, the worship of idols. They were not to worship anything that had been dedicated or sacrificed to idols, including food. Secondly, they were not to eat meat with blood in it. And thirdly, nothing that had been strangled and had not been uh, uh, cleansed and killed in the kosher way as outlined in the Old Testament where the blood was to be drained out of the meat. So in terms of things offered to idols, it covers the first and second commandment there in Exodus 23 and 4. That is to um, worship our God alone. 
and have no other gods before him and not worship any graven images. In terms of not eating blood, Genesis 9, 3 to 6, and then not eating things strangled and that had not gone through the kasher or kosher, um, blood draining, those texts are in Deuteronomy 12, 16 and 23 and Leviticus 3, 17. We covered some of this in Prophecy Seminar Lesson 19. Let's go on. In Acts 15, 30 and 31. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch and when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. So the Jewish leaders took the letter from the general council in Jerusalem up to the Gentile churches. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. So the Gentile um, churches were rejoicing over the counsel that had been sent to them. So friends, the church leaders discussed the issue and then they made a pronouncement. What was that pronouncement and what was it? And was it accepted by the churches? Well, we shared with you four things and it certainly was accepted. Friends, there was a dispute in the early church over whether or not circumcision should be practiced. And I didn't include those verses because you would have done that in your reading. If not, pause and do it now. Well, the Jerusalem Council was called to determine whether this should be laid upon the Gentile believers. The decision they reached was that it was not to be imposed on the believers. Friends, have a look on the screen. Why? Because the ceremonial laws were finished at the cross. That is, this is the abolition and recognition of the end of the ceremonial laws. And we covered that extensively back in Prophecy Seminar, lesson number 10. You might like to go back and review that. So friends, that message was then conveyed by letter through the apostles to the Gentile believers who accepted the pronouncement given by James from the Jerusalem Council. This decision was regarded as the decision of the Lord. It was accepted as binding upon all believers in the church. This incident very clearly indicates that the early church had a definite organization and that the members of the church respected the decision of the whole body. I'd like you to pause a moment. I'd like to share with you some extra information that's not in your lesson guides. Please have a look at the screen. Friends, the incident of the council at Jerusalem helps us to understand that the early church not only had organization, but it had a central governing body that had authority. The early church was not a congregational style of organization where each local congregation made decisions independent and contrary to the action of the general body. The general body made decisions with representatives from all the churches present. And those decisions were binding upon all believers. This clearly indicates strong central organization with some local autonomy in the early church. Well, the biblical example that we've been given is not one of loose organization in the New Testament church, but of strong organization. I'm going to ask you now to join me halfway down page four and we're up to question number 10. So we are now going to test the Seventh-day Adventist Church and find out how it is organized in these last days. Let me share with you the note. The Seventh-day Adventist Church today follows a pattern of organization similar 
to the early church. Have a look on the screen. The church around the world is bound together in one body, just as the early church was. So each local church is a part of a local conference in which the churches in one or two states or portions of a state area are bound together. Each local conference in turn is part of a union conference. Five or six local conferences usually comprise a union conference. There are several union conferences in a world division, and the world is divided into 10 divisions of the general conference. And since this was written, there are now 13 world divisions. World divisions include North America, Inter-America, South America, and our local South Pacific division in the Southern Hemisphere. The World Church headquarters is lo located in Washington, D.C., Thus, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is closely bound together throughout the entire world. Well, friends, a few years ago, I attended the Global Internet Evangelism Network as I worked at one of our Adventist media centers and was putting Bible studies online and doing web work. And it was my privilege to fly to Washington, D.C. for that Global Internet Evangelism Conference. And it was quite an amazing time to be there and to be there at the headquarters of the World Church. It's an amazing building. It houses people from all over the world representing their divisions. There's committee meetings meeting. They are processing the agenda. There is this amazing um, globe in the foyer where you can highlight your world division and see uh, which countries it uh, encompasses and see the churches light up. There's also a beautiful worship service where we had a uh, worship building where we had our worship services and other meetings. Friends, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a representative form of government in which delegates are selected from the local church to elect the leadership of the local conference. The local conference selects delegates to a union conference that elects the union leadership. Well, the union conference selects delegates to the general conference that elects the world leadership. On the screen, you will see a graphic that is pointing forward to the general conference session to be held at St. Louis in 2022. I believe it is the 6th of June, 2022, where delegates and representatives from the Seventh-day Adventist churches all around the world will go to that. I'm so proud that we actually are a part of a democracy, a democratic church that votes through issues and people um, based on representation from around the world. Thus, each individual member through his or her representatives actually has a voice in the affairs of the entire church. Because of the unified system of organization in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the church is united throughout the world with a global strategy for reaching Earth's billions. Well, that takes us to our third heading uh, for Prophecy Seminar session number 30. And that is we're looking at the bottom of page five at the need for giving. The individual Christian not only is to witness, but also is to be a part of the body of Christ, the church. As each one witnesses as a part of that body, the church is able to share the everlasting gospel with the entire world. By collectively binding together, 
the whole church is able to accomplish much more than it would if each individual worked on his own. Likewise, by combining our various resources, we can all have a part in financing God's work around the world. Not only is there a need for witness and for belonging, but there's also a need for giving. So friends, in our local two churches here in the Lake Macquarie area, we have just donated up to $50,000 to help missionary projects overseas, including that wonderful school in India, the Ayazora School. Let's have a look at the top of page six and question 11. What is God's plan for the support of his worldwide work? We go back to Malachi 3, which is a large passage which talks about the way God wants to support his work. Malachi wrote to the people of God in ancient times, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. What is God's plan for the support of his worldwide work? Friends, God has instituted an amazing system called tithing, and we are to bring all the tithes into the storehouse. So the question comes, what is the storehouse? What was the storehouse in Old Testament times? Well, friends, the Old Testament storehouse was also known as the sanctuary, was also known as the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and the storehouse were all that beautiful sanctuary building that was there in ancient Israel in the wilderness where they brought together meat and grain and all the sacrifice offerings. So let's be very, very clear that the ancient sanctuary, the place of sacrifice and worship, was the heart of where God said his storehouse was. Question 12, how important is it for Christians to return tithe to God? We go to Malachi 3, 8 and 9. Malachi writes, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? Malachi writes on behalf of God. And God says, in tithes and offerings, you are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Friends, how important it is that for Christians to return tithe to God? It's absolutely crucial because failure to return the tithe is called robbery. I want to share with you an extra note that's not in your lessons. Have a look on the screen. Friends, to fail to pay tithe is called robbery. One of the Ten Commandments says in Exodus 20, 15, Thou shalt not steal. To fail to pay tithe is to rob God, to steal from God, and it is to break one of the Ten Commandments. Breaking the Ten Commandments is sin, and sin demands a saviour. Thus, if a person has not been returning a faithful tithe to God, he needs to confess that sin to God and ask Jesus to come into his heart and remove selfishness from him and forgive his sin of failing to pay tithe then he needs to begin to pay a faithful tithe. You know, friends, today people have suggested to me that the storehouse can be anything. 
They say it can be a worldwide humanitarian organization and they boast of how they get a tax deduction. Friends, when we return our tithe to God's sanctuary, his storehouse and tabernacle, which is the modern day church, we are not supposed to be receiving something back like a tax deduction for doing that. That's kind of seems like cheating on God. That doesn't sound right. Let me share with you the note under 12. God is very clear. To fail to return the tithe and give free will offerings is to rob God. Tithing, in fact, is a test of our honesty to God, but offerings are a demonstration of our love. No Christian wants to be found guilty of robbing God. I want to pause a moment and just give you some extra information and ask this question. So exactly where did tithing come from? I'm taking you back to the first mention of tithing in the Old Testament. It's Genesis 14, 18 to 20. Then Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, Salem later on became Jerusalem. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. I want to come back to that. That's an amazing description. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. So Melchizedek places a blessing on Abraham. And blessed be God, most high, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So there is an amazing record of an mysterious person. So who is this Melchizedek? Do you know anyone in the Old Testament who was a king as well as a priest? Some of you will know that those two roles were kept absolutely separate so that the king could not abuse the spiritual side and the priest and uh, the high priest could not abuse the secular side. They were kept separate. So this is absolutely fantastic. And so in giving tithes, Abraham acknowledged God's goodness. So who is this mysterious character? And it's also mentioned in Hebrews. Well, the king of heaven and the high priest of mankind, many commentators say, came down from heaven to receive his tithes from his people. So friends, if anyone says to me, I don't think it's really important to pay the tithes, then the Lord Jesus Christ came down in a pre incarnate appearance as Melchizedek to receive worship and tithes from the people of God. I think that's very significant. Well, the next mention of tithing is Genesis 28. You remember the story of Jacob fleeing from home and from his angry brother Esau? At the end of Genesis 28, what does Jacob say to God as he does a deal with the God of heaven to guide and protect him? And this stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Friends, there is the basis of the tithe. It's actually spelled up as to how much it is. A tithe, therefore, is 10% or one-tenth. It's absolutely amazing, isn't it? Because if you go into partnership with somebody, then a partner will want 50-50% of your business. If there are three partners in the business, they'll want a third each. But how much does God want from us? It's one-tenth or 10%, really? Really? God only is asking for 10%. It's incredible, isn't it? And so God shows us that he is testing us. He's testing our faith 
And I want to tell you that God can always make the 90% that is left behind after you put that 10% aside stretch out to the whole 100%. Well, what does God's word say about tithing? In Leviticus 27 verse 30, as I give you some extra information, what does that text say? It's not in the lesson. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. So, friends, the question comes, when we pay a tithe, should we pay a tithe on our gross income? which is the total amount of money we receive before tax is taken out or after tax and expenses is taken out, then we pay the tithe on the net. Well, friends, I think the answer is very clearly given here in Leviticus 27.30. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It's holy to the Lord. Let me share with you. A, uh, a quote from some extra material that I have in front of me. Israel gave the tithe of their increase, whether from the herd or whether from the field. If the herd increased by 10 cattle, the 10th animal belonged to the Lord. If it was his without any deductions being made, if the income from the field was 100 bushels, 10 bushels belonged to the Lord. This was given to the Lord without any deduction of any kind. And so, friends, you can find that in that passage in Leviticus 27. So, friends, in terms of the answer, if you have faith to believe that you can pay tithe from your gross income, then God will bless you on the gross and you will not go hungry and you will be blessed. But if you don't have faith and you pay God tithe only on the net, then you will be blessed, I believe, also on the net. We're in question 13, halfway down page six. Let's go to question 13. How were the Old Testament priests supported in Numbers 18.21? God says through Moses, Behold, I've given the children of Levi, one of the 12 tribes, all the tithes. The King James describes this as all the tenth showing you how much a tithe is, in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they performed, the work of the tabernacle of the meeting. So they were given the tithes to make up for them not being able to earn an income because they were working the temple every day. So isn't that interesting, friends? Because the Levites were not to ever inherit property. So they were to be given the tithe. How were the Old Testament priests supported? I've given the children of Israel or the children of Levi all the tithes, which is a tenth in Israel. Well, the children of Levi, the priests of Old Testament, received all the tithe. The word tithe means a tenth. Ten percent of all the income of the children of Israel went to the priests for their support. And in Old Testament times, the tithe belonged exclusively to the priest and to those who ministered at the altar. Friends, would you be surprised to find out that the Israelites tithed on their gross income and paid in tithes and offerings up to 25 to 33% or one third of their income was returned to the Lord? Now, let me ask, is this a successful model that we should follow? Well, friends, when you think today, of the most successful race of human beings in terms of money around the world. Many would nominate the top money men 
who've lived on planet Earth as being of the Israeli or Jewish people. It's worth a thought, isn't it? Question 14. How does the Apostle Paul say that the New Testament ministry is to be supported? So we know how the Old Testament uh, priests were supported. What about New Testament churches? Paul said to the church in Corinth, do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? So he's referring back to the way it was done in Old Testament times. Now he applies it to their New Testament times. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So I think that's very, very clear. Paul says in New Testament times that those who preach should live from the gospel, from the tithes that are brought in. So friends are asking the question, does God need our money? No, he doesn't. He owns the world. He owns the animals. He owns the gold and silver and he owns us. Paul indicates that just as the Old Testament priests were supported by the temple, so God has ordained that the New Testament ministry be supported in the same way as the Old Testament ministry. The Old Testament ministry was supported exclusively from the tithe. Likewise, the tithe is to be used for the support of the ministry in New Testament times and in our times today. So friends, when someone returns a tithe to a Seventh-day Adventist church, the local church treasurer remits all the tithe to the local conference, which you can see on the screen. The local conference supports the gospel ministers in the conference. The local church does not pay the pastor directly. All pastors receive the same basic salary, regardless of the size of the church. In this way, large churches help these smaller churches and pastors do not move to large churches to get larger salaries. The local conference in turn sends nearly 40% of its tithe to the union conference. And the general conference, in order to help support the ministry of the gospel around the world, and thus the local individual church member who returns his tithe supports the worldwide ministry of the church. So here is the division that we live in, the South Pacific Division, and this set of programs of the Prophecy Seminar are coming out of Australia and the great state of New South Wales. So friends, this explains that the tithe goes from individual members through local churches to conferences to unions and to the general conference and then is returned back to the different entities via uh, grants and uh, appropriations and donations to missionaries and underfunded areas of the world. The 1040 window has been a major emphasis over the last 10 or 15 years to reach different people groups in those areas through the tithes and offerings. I want to now just stop for a moment to give you my personal testimony. Well, many years ago when I was a young person, I worked as a student missionary in England in 1980. I was in charge of a church there. I was the assistant to the pastor there and I did a lot of work renovating the church, painting and, uh, uh, you know, ron sealing the floors, which is varnishing the floors and upgrading the equipment. So friends, when I left Australia, I had worked over the summer uh, selling books door to door and I had 
$2,000 saved, and so I owed God $200 tithe. A little voice in my head said, seeing you're going to work for God um, and you're not going to be paid a wage, you could put the $200 tithe into your airfare. Another voice very clearly came into my head saying, will a man rob God? Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. So friends, 8 to 10. So friends, I decided that no, I should not appropriate my tithe into my airfare over to England. And so I didn't. And friends, over the next 12 months, I want to share with you what happened. Before I left, my grandfather rang my father up and donated $600 towards my ministry in England for 12 months as a student missionary. A friend of my mother, Mrs. Curry, donated $500. At the end of the 12 months, I was over there and I needed to go to the Middle East. My grandfather donated another $500 and Mrs. Curry, the family friend, gave $200. And then there was a donation I never found out about till years later because the donation was made towards my college fees and my theology course by a lecturer who was a friend of my father. So friends, when you add all that up, it's kind of amazing that it all came to $2,000. Friends, do you think if I'd put the $200 tie that belonged to God into my airfare to help pay for my $650 hop across from Melbourne to London Fair, do you think I would have received back $2,000? Friends, I don't believe I would have because I would have been robbing God even though I thought I had a really good answer or a really good excuse. Friends, tonight I'm asking you to trust the Lord God and tell you that if you place your money in the bank of heaven, that amazing things will happen. Some of those amazing things were that the money that was given was able to fund me on a tour of the Middle East and I've been able to go to the Middle East twice now and again in 2005 and I want to tell you that those trips have cemented and solidified my faith in the Bible because I've seen many of the places that I've talked to you about in the Prophecy Seminar. We're at question 15 at the bottom of page six. How is the rest of the work of the church to be supported in Deuteronomy 16, 17? Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Friends, people start to stress out about tithes and offerings. You are to give as you have been blessed. If you haven't been blessed and you've got no money to give, then you don't have to give. But even out of small amounts, like the widow's mite that Jesus commented on in the New Testament, that if you are faithful in small things, God will take care of the rest. Well, an offering is any amount given in addition to the tithe. The Bible does not specify how much the offering is, but allows each individual to determine the amount in accordance with the blessing of God in his life. Thus, all other work of the church is supported by free will offerings. In order to carry the everlasting gospel into all the world, the church needs financial support. The tithe supports the gospel ministry of the church. Meanwhile, offerings support the educational, medical, humanitarian and missionary work of the church. Each member is encouraged to give and divide his offerings between the world needs, the local conference needs and local church needs. Friends, I want to share with you an amazing saying. It was from Wolf Robe in June 1909 and is a Cree Indian wisdom saying. 
Listen to this, because I think it's never been more relevant today. If we find it hard to return tithe and offerings to God, and we're struggling with covetousness and selfishness in our hearts. He said, only when the last tree has been cut down and the last river has been poisoned and the last fish has been caught, will we realise that we cannot eat money? Friends, I want to testify to you that I've never been able to outgive God. Money is not the root of all evil. 1 Timothy 6.10, it says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is a necessity. We need it. It's the love of money. It's pride and selfishness and covetousness that do injury to us and also to God's church. Question 16, what does Jesus say about giving? How should we give? In Acts 20, verse 35, it says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I guess that would be a good motto for the taxation office. But what did Jesus say about giving? Uh, then Luke wrote down that Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Question 17, what promise does God give the faithful tithe payer through the prophet Malachi? We go back to Malachi chapter three and verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. Friends, the King James Version says, and try me now in this. It says, and test me now in this. The test is not on uh, you to pay tithe so much. The test is on God. Because once you've paid it, then he is faithful. So God says, try me now. Test me out in this to see if it works, to see if I can make the 90% go further than the 100%. So test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I'm not open for you, the windows of heaven pour out for you such a blessing, there will be not room enough to receive it. So friends, in ancient times, the rich threw gold and silver coins out on the street to feed the poor and there was a lolly scramble friends it's absolutely fantastic isn't it and so in malachi 3 11 and 12 god has a uh, promise to farmers how is he going to protect them if they're faithful in tithe paying he says i'll rebuke the devourer for your sakes i'm giving you some extra information here on the screen god says i'll rebuke the devourer meaning the pests the bugs the blights so that the pest will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. This was to be something that could be witnessed about. Friends, there's a story from a little girl and her dad who were suffering a devastating attack of army beetles and army grubs on their crops. The father was despairing. And so the little girl said, Daddy, you pay your tithe. Let's kneel down and I'm going to pray to Jesus. Dear Jesus, she prayed. My daddy is faithful in returning his tithe to you as you have asked us to do in your word. We are asking that you will cause some miracle to happen, that our crops will not be 
wiped out by the dreaded army bug and army beetle. Father, thank you for looking after your crop. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. They arose and were about to walk away when a cloud of birds filled the sky. They came and allotted on the field, and very soon those birds had eaten almost all or every one of the army beetles. I want to ask you again, do you have faith to believe that God is faithful? Will you trust God to help you manage your finances? Do you believe that 90% with God goes further than 100% selfishly kept by yourself? Well, let's ask the question, does tithing actually work? Is it actually a financial or business principle? Do you know these men from left to right? M.W. Baldwin of the Locomotive Works. M.S. Hershey of the English Chocolate Bars. W. Wrigley, many people know of the confectionery brand of Wrigley Chewing Gum. And who doesn't know of F.W. Woolworth, the supermarket chain? But it goes on. James L. Craft of Kraft Cheese, H.P. Crowell of Quaker Oats, H.J. Hines of the 57 Varieties, and John D. Rockefeller, a multi-millionaire. What does all of these men, what do all of them have in common? They all practice tithing from a young age. In fact, John D. Rockefeller started tithing when he was earning, I think, $3.50 a week. So he was putting aside his 35 cents from tithing. Friends, tithing absolutely works. And so I'm asking you again, will you trust God to help you manage your finances? Are you going to allow God to be your 10% partner? He's a 10% partner, but he gives 100% of the blessings. Well, I wonder if any of you out there have read this amazing book by Roger Latourneau, Mover of Men and Mountains. It's the story of the Caterpillar Tractor and Truck Company that was uh, started and formed in the United States of America. This company has spread around the world and Roger Latorno was a, a very, very strong tither. And so friends, that book is testament to how God built a worldwide conglomerate company, a worldwide institution out of his faith in paying tithe. And so here in Australia, we know the big cat Dump trucks take all of our iron ore to the ports and to the trains. And so it's an absolutely amazing testimony, isn't it? Let's go to question 18. If we give, what will happen to us? Are we going to go broke? Let's have a look at the words of Jesus. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over will be put into your heart. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Well, friends, if we give, what will happen to us? If we give, we will receive back with the same measure that you use, it'll be measured to you again. I just want to share with you on the screen a wonderful promise, not in the lesson. In Haggai 2.8, the Lord says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So when we return a tithe, we don't pay God tithe, we return a tithe. God's not our employee. When we return a tithe, we're only returning what's already God's because the silver and gold is mine, he says. And what about the animals that we look after? God says, for every beast of the forest is mine, and I own the cattle on a thousand hills. That's Psalm 50 and verse 10. Let's have a look at verse 12. What does God owe us? Does he need us to pay him tithe? Absolutely not. This is what he says. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. 
for the world is mine and all its fullness. Friends, God doesn't need our meager little tithes and offerings. He is the one who's running the universe. We are the ones who need to give to root out selfishness out of our hearts. Well, join me in question 19. What kind of a giver does God like? In 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, but this I say, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Friends, have you ever met someone at Christmas who's an uncheerful giver or they leave the price tag on the gift? Yes, that really spoils the joy of receiving a gift. God loves a cheerful giver. And so there are two principles for giving. In verse 6, we learn to sow richly. And in verse 7, we learned that we are to give lovingly. Let's go to question 20. Does life really consist of the possessions of things? In Luke 12 and verse 15, Jesus' words, And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You know, Jesus is actually warning us in our materialistic and consumerist world to take heed and beware. Friends, sometimes the richest people in the world are the most unhappy. Life is more than material possessions, much more. In fact, possessing a relationship with Jesus Christ and having a relationship, a strong relationship with him, far outweighs material possessions. So friends, sometimes we need to learn that riches do not always equal happiness. And sometimes the abundance of riches leads to, first of all, financial independence from God. Secondly, spiritual independence from God, then emotional independence from God, and then a divorce where our relationship with God totally breaks down. Friends, there's nothing wrong with money. Money is just a tool and implement. It's how we use it. Well, join me at the top of page eight and question 21. Should a Christian be worried about having the vital necessities of life. And many people worry. And today, many people are under financial stress and job pressure. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind friends worry is a sin why for all these things the nations of the world secular people seek after and worry about and your father knows that you need these things the heavenly father knows already so what's the remedy what's the answer the divine prescription but seek the kingdom of god and all these things shall be added unto you so should be we worried about having the vital necessities of life Friends, I always say our Heavenly Father spoils us and the answer is no, we don't have to worry. Remember what Jesus said about the lilies of the field and Solomon, how beautiful they were and they don't sow nor reap and God provides for them. What fantastic promises we've just read. God says that he'll take care of our needs. We need not be concerned about our pressing needs. Let's make sure we trust God 
completely. I want to matter in a text that's not here in your lesson. You might like to write down Matthew 23, 23. The question is, did Jesus Christ himself say anything about tithing? He absolutely did in one verse. It's Matthew 23, 23. Have a look on the screen. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In other words, beware. You are hypocrites. You are frauds. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. These are garden herbs. But you neglected the weightier matters of the law. You haven't done justice and mercy and faith. These ought you to have done justice, mercy and faith without leaving the others. That is paying tithe undone. So Jesus commends tithe paying. What was the problem? Well, Pharisees would go down and pay tithe of their garden herbs in the sanctuary and the tabernacle to be seen of men for earthly praise. But they would step over five or six beggars on the way to the tabernacle and would give the beggars nothing. Friends, this is what Jesus is saying. Tithes must be paid, but also be kind and loving and generous. Question 22, what should the Christian seek first? I think you might know this text very well. Jesus said, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Friends, if you're worried tonight about your job, about your future, about food on the table and paying bills, I'm going to read this one more time. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put God first. And how many things will be added unto you? All the things that you and I need will be added unto us in spades. If Christ is first and foremost in our lives, if God's cause and the proclamation of his message is our first priority, God promises that our needs will be cared for. What fantastic encouragement to put God first in our life well friends an extra text i'm adding in is matthew 16 and verse 26 what happens to those who are selfish and those who might rob god jesus said for what profit what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and what loses his soul or what will a man give in exchange for his soul Friends, are we going to grasp for the money and the goods and the possessions of this life and trade them for the life to come? Then let's not lose our soul with worldly trinkets. Let's be faithful in our tithes and offerings and put the kingdom of God first. And God will never, ever let you down or disappoint you. Well, that leads us into our final lesson question tonight. Is it your desire to be a part of God's last day remnant church and to support the worldwide proclamation of the everlasting gospel? I hope you've desired in your heart tonight to make sure you're faithful in paying your tithes and offerings to the Lord. Friends, I want to just share something with you now. What does God really want from you and what does God really want from me? God is just waiting for you to to waiting to add blessings to your life and your work and your business and your family. But he is not sure if you really, really fully trust him, because if you do, you will trust him and financially return his tithe back to him. We're not paying God tithe. We're returning that which is already his. May God bless you all as you do that.
you know, it's my pleasure tonight to remind you that this prophecy, this Daniel and Revelation Prophecy Seminar was funded through the absolute generosity of the members of two local Seventh Adventist churches in this area. So what did we discover in tonight's lesson? We asked the question, how do people on earth join the body of Christ? The answer is through baptism, we join the body of Christ and join God's last day remnant church. Well, what form of organization did the New Testament church have? It had apostles, elders, deacons. It had the Jerusalem church council. It had a structure and it was organized. What percentage is a tithe? We found out tonight that one-tenth or 10% of the gross income is a tithe. And what are Christians told to seek after first? We are to seek after God, his righteousness and his kingdom. And how many things will be added unto you? The answer is all things will be added unto you. Our response questions tonight are three. If it is clear to you from scripture that God desires us to be a part of an organized church on earth, would you place a tick in box number one? Number two, if it's your desire to return a faithful tithe and give offerings to God as he's blessed and prospered you, I'm going to ask you also to say yes in your heart or tick box number two. Number three, is it your desire to be a part of God's remnant people who are sharing the message of Daniel to the world today? Then I hope that will also be a positive response from you. Well, our quiz questions tonight are just true and false. Let's get started. Thank you for writing true and false on the envelopes. And let's go to question number one. The gospel that must be preached to all the world before Jesus comes includes the message about the book of Daniel. Is that true or false? The gospel that must be preached to all the world includes the book of Daniel. Number two. The New Testament church had no organization whatsoever. It was unstructured and unorganized. True or false? Number three, the New Testament indicates that Christians should belong to an organized church. True or false? Number four, the Bible indicates that the tithe is to be used for the support of the ministry. True or false? And number five, refusal to pay the tithe is characterized in Scripture as robbing God. True or false? All right, I think those answers were self-evident tonight based on the lesson. Let's go to question one. The answer was true. The answer to question number two was false. The answer to three and four and five was true, true and true. Our answers tonight in the quiz from one to five are true, false, true, true and true. Thank you so much for sending those answers in to me as soon as you can. Well, tonight, friends, in our Prophecy Seminar, Wall of Truth, we started in Daniel 12. And what did we learn tonight? We learned about the fact that God's ancient and uh, last day church is organized and how it is funded through the tithing system. Well, our next lesson is a really interesting and challenging one if you've been a christian for many years i don't think you'll be familiar with this topic it's absolutely brilliant what are we going to learn number one how important is the cross of jesus christ what are the four counterfeit teachings which destroy the value of jesus christ's death on the cross and how did judas actually betray jesus and number four what did the name bar abbas 
or Barabbas actually mean? I want to just remind you tonight that you can fill in the exhibit, which is the Prophecy Seminar exam. You can actually do that now, do it early. It's an open book test. You can do that and please scan it and send it to me as soon as possible. I've already received a number of exhibit uh, exams back from our students. Please do that as soon as possible. They must be handed in next Wednesday night at the latest to be marked in time. Friends, it's been wonderful to be together tonight. Let us thank God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I want to thank you tonight for showing us that your Old Testament and New Testament church were highly organized. And Father, that reflects on you and your Son and the Holy Spirit, that you are organized and have decorum and order. The chaos is not a part of the business of heaven. Father, I want to thank you for the amazing system called the tithing system that you set up, where people could support the work of the Lord with minimal expense. Father, you're so loving and kind that like the government, you don't try to take 30 to 50% of our wages. You only ask for 10% and you are so kind and loving and generous. Father, I pray that all who will hear this will taste and see that the Lord is good and test you and find out that you can make the 90% go further than if we keep the whole 100% of our money for ourselves. Thank you for blessing, guiding, directing us. Thank you for this amazing lesson. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You've been listening to Prophecy Seminar, the book of Daniel with Pastor David Price. For more information about this series, you can visit the YouTube page, True Blue SDA, all one word. That's True Blue SDA. This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.